This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Welcome to Saving Grace. My name is Mike Gutemann. We keep getting closer to Christmas, and uh, I'm sure you're also getting bombarded with all kinds of messages about the season that we're in. Some of them seem to have more pure motives than others. And uh, we are going to continue this series on the topics of hope, peace, love, and joy. As there are so many mixed messages during a season like Christmas, I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels like it's easy to get distracted, even from what we want to be focusing on. So my hope today with this whole series is that we would be able to play a small part in refocusing our attention to the foundational things that actually have the capacity to make a difference, both inwards and outwards, whether you're listening to this during the Christmas season or at any other time. Today, we have Dr. Mark Haywood with us again. Dr. Haywood is one of our appreciated professors, a theologian, and a longtime pastor. We are so excited to have you back on Saving Grace again, Dr. Haywood. So good to be here with you. Now, we are in the third week of our series, and uh, we're going to focus on love. Many of us are probably familiar with the passage of John 3.16. Sure. Perhaps we can sometimes feel so familiar with the common phrases and stories, especially in, in Christian circles, that we actually have stopped really grasping the magnitude of God's love to send His only Son to die on our behalf. And throughout history, and described in the Old Testament, The Jewish people waited for the coming Messiah that was promised to them, and yet not even they knew the fullness of God's plan that had been put into action through Christ that would demonstrate God's amazing love for them and the entire world. As as we have this revelation available to us through Jesus Christ, I think it's key that we consider the depth of His love for each of us personally, not just the past that He saved us from, but the future that He saved us for. And uh, we're going to try to look at an even bigger picture of God's love today and a significance in our lives. Now, Dr. Haywood, as we read the Old Testament, we read about a people that are chosen by God for a, a unique role in history. Sure. And uh, this people seem to have been very familiar with a, a sovereign God and uh, a God that they saw as a, a righteous judge. And we read about their their fear of God, but before he sent his son to die for their sins, in what ways were they able to to be aware of God's love? That's a great question, Mikay. Um, First of all, as I uh, study not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament, the Bible in total, um, there is a prevailing, uh, what we call biblical meta-narrative, which brings into focus um, God's love. And the biblical meta-narrative that we share with students all the time is God's sovereign right to rule on earth as he does in heaven, his right to love and to be loved. And so we see from Genesis to Revelation, uh, God uh, showering um, people with uh, his love. And his love comes forth uh, through uh, not only his words, but also uh, his actions. We've uh, seen him do that uh, in a a variety of ways from Genesis to uh, Revelation. And if we just stuck with the Old Testament, we could start in the garden uh, where um, even after uh, he had created Adam, created Eve, he placed them in a uh, position of rulership as his vice regents. And that in itself was an act of love, gave them all of what they needed to be successful. 
And even after they failed him, uh, he still came by uh, and um, rushed them out of the garden so that they uh, would not exist uh, in uh, their fallen state in that particular uh, environment. And so every uh, act uh, that God uh, has done towards uh, his people has been an act of of love. And then we read in Scripture uh, where uh, God talks about his everlasting love. He's loved Israel. He's loved uh, the Gentiles as well. Uh, and and I argue uh, quite often that uh, God always intended to uh, love uh, everybody, not just the Jews, because uh, Adam and Eve obviously were not uh, Jews, and he showed them quite a bit of love. So in in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, it says, we love him because he first loved us. But would you say that we can find examples who, who longed for the arrival of the Messiah because they were moved or longing for more of God's love? Yeah, it's my contention that if you go back to Genesis 3.15, and we call that uh, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, uh, where um, God predicts that um, the uh, seed of the woman will uh, destroy uh, the seed of the serpent. And so that is a uh, prediction that Messiah would, uh, would come. Uh, and so uh, from that point on, um, certainly the Jewish people look forward uh, to uh, Messiah coming. Uh, but we also see uh, many what we call messianic prophecies like Psalm 2, Psalm 110, um, Jeremiah 31, uh, just a variety of prophecies out of Isaiah. Uh, Zechariah brings forth uh, a variety of, of prophecies about Messiah. And so uh, certainly um, many people uh, were waiting for a Messiah to come. You see the Magi, they show up looking for him. So obviously um, they were waiting for him to come. The disciples, when Jesus comes on the scene in John 1, uh, they um, uh, rush to get uh, their brother or um, Nathaniel, and they say, look, we found Messiah. And so many people were looking for Messiah, even the Gentiles. Were, if you recall uh, Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, she identified the fact that Messiah would come, and Jesus said, hey, I am he. And so um, there are many people, when Jesus, uh, when they took Jesus to the temple, um, the uh, woman in the temple and the priest in the temple, both were looking for Messiah and felt like, uh, hey, I've, I've seen him, and now God can call me home, so to speak. And so um, from Genesis uh, throughout, uh, many people have been looking for Messiah to come. As you're, you're talking about that, it makes me wonder if we today have a different idea of what God's love is or should look like than this people did throughout the Old Testament. Do you think we have a different picture of God's love? I would say that we um, uh, have a, a very similar picture of what they uh, saw both in the Old and the New Testament. Um, sometimes we get a little confused about the Old Testament and think that it's all law and that God was a uh, retribution uh, kind of God. Uh, but uh, as I mentioned, even about Adam and Eve, God showed them love, God showed them grace. And so um, 
I will say that uh, as we look at Scripture, there's this um, theological principle of progressive revelation where God has unfolded uh, his message um, to us over time. And so we do have a little bit more uh, information uh, about his love and how that love uh, looks. But I I would say that um, the Israelites got a really good uh, dose of God's love and a good picture of what his love was all about. I like that. That's a good way to look at it. In reading the Bible, we see plenty of evidence of, of the darkness and evil that existed long before Jesus ever entered the world. Um, of course, we still see existence of that today as well. Um, but what expectations do you think the people had that when the Messiah finally came, that he would come with a different kind of love, both for us, but that we would be able to love each other better as well? Sure. Um, again, we look to uh, what I would call the messianic prophecies, those prophecies that spoke about Messiah. And let me say parenthetically that Messiah means the anointed one. Uh, and so as you look at um, passages like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, or you look at Daniel uh, 7, uh, specifically uh, verse 13, where it talks about the Son of Man uh, coming. And of course, the Old Testament uh, were uh, the Jewish people's Bible in the New Testament. Uh, and I say Bible um, figuratively speaking, but it was their Word of God. Right. And so as they looked at these various prophecies, they thought that they were going to get a Messiah uh, that would come in and defeat all kingdoms uh, of the world. Uh, at that time, it would be the Roman government to overthrow uh, the Roman government based on the prophecies out of uh, Daniel and a variety of uh, other uh, books. They felt like um, he would come in and uh, he would return them back to uh, their days of fortune um, and that uh, the times of the Gentiles, if you recall, the times of the Gentiles started when uh, the Babylonians came in and put uh, Israel into a Babylonian captivity for those 70 years. And uh, the Babylonians came in in what we call three different uh, tours, 605 B.C. and 597 B.C. and 586 B.C., which was the last tour, which which really destroyed Israel, or I should say Jerusalem, uh, and uh, left a few few uh, poor folk to till the land. Uh, but that started what we call the times of the Gentiles. And of course, uh, when they were looking for Messiah, they were expecting him to end that time. He was going to be a king that uh, had a government that had no end, as Isaiah would say in chapter 9, 6, and 7. And so they were looking for some glorious days. He would usher them, usher them into the uh, messianic age and um, they would just tiptoe through the tulip, so to speak. And so that's the kind of Messiah that they were looking for, um, one that would come in with power and victory and that would free them, if you will, uh, physically uh, for, and spiritually, for that matter, and write as Jeremiah 31 would say in the New Covenant, he would change their hearts. He would write his word on their hearts, uh, and uh, they would he would put them in a position where not only they would know God, but everybody would know God. Here at Grace, core teaching of the school is, is obviously about how the love of Christ is one that can never be earned and can never be lost. This incredible grace, and uh, under the system of the Old Covenant law, did the people expect to, to earn the Messiah's love or God's love? And how were they able to, to hear and understand this message of, of grace 
in the midst of the time they were living in. Sure. What we see in the Old Testament is God showing uh, grace, uh, mercy, uh, favor, if you will, all the time. Um, I would even say that grace is uh, a part of God's spiritual DNA, if you will. Um, grace is who God is. Uh, love is who God is. Uh, and so the uh, Old Testament saints saw many times where God showered them with love. They uh, got blessed by him when they didn't deserve to be uh, blessed by him. Um, they were chosen by him, and God specifically reminds them in Deuteronomy 7 that he didn't choose them because they were the best people or the greatest uh, people or the largest people, but he chose them because of his grace and his mercy. And we look at basically two key words uh, that come to mind uh, when I uh, think of grace in the Old Testament, and that's ken and uh, hesed. And both of those words give you the idea of grace and uh, mercy, uh, a favor. And then this hesed idea gives you God's loving kindness, his tender mercies, his kindness, his loyal love, his his faithfulness. And so they constantly, constantly saw um, how God uh, was gracious to them. If you uh, go back to your Old Testament history, you'll see that uh, Noah had a drinking problem, uh, but yet uh, God still allowed his family to repopulate the world. You'll find that uh, when under pressure, Abraham would lie. Uh, he lied on two occasions that are recorded, but yet God called him a friend of his and uh, the father faithful. Uh, we've seen uh, David. You know David's uh, uh, deeds. David had, had what we would call a tactile problem. He uh, couldn't keep his hands off of beautiful ladies. Uh, and so God still said he was a, a man after his own heart. And so we see constantly these great men that have failed, if you will, uh, but yet God showed them grace. God showed them mercy. And we even see them uh, showing up in the um, uh, Chapter of chapter eleven of the book of Hebrews, where they're known as the uh, Hall of Fame of the Faithful, uh, Tamar, who dressed up like uh, a prostitute uh, and uh, gave um, uh, Judah a hard time, which he should have gotten, uh, by the way. Uh, but she's in. Um, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you know. So we see God's graciousness over and over and over again. Uh, and we see that not only in the New Testament, but certainly in the Old Testament. And so that should have provided what I would say a platform for um, the Old Testament saints to know that they didn't have to earn uh, God's love, but God uh, continued to, uh, to love them uh, despite themselves. I think when I talk to people... Uh, both Christians or non-Christians, about the Old Testament, it seems like a lot of people have this picture of a, an angry God or, sure. you know, it, when you're sure. talking about love, a loving God in the Old Testament, sure. I think that's something we often miss or we're, do you, as you teach Bible study methods and, and hermeneutics, is is there some advice you would give us in is there thing, are there things we're, we're taking with us as we're reading the text or are we reading it wrong? What do, you, what do you think a lot of people are missing that leaves them with this dark image of the Old Testament, God? That's a great question, Mika, and I, I would respond in this manner. Uh, sometimes when we come to the text, we come to the text with our own presuppositions, or our own uh, preconditioned thoughts. And many people approach the, the Bible and approach their relationship with God as if God owes them something. 
And so uh, when you really start to uh, study God and you understand the scriptures, you know that whatever God does for us is on the uh, grace side of the equation uh, because he owes us nothing. Romans eleven thirty three to 36 reminds us that he doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't right. have to seek our counsel. He doesn't have to seek anybody's counsel. And so if you go to the scriptures with the idea in mind that the only thing that we're deserving of is uh, punishment, death, even if you uh, can put it that way in Romans 3.23 and 6.23, that whatever God does is a gracious move. So the fact that uh, he has the sovereign right to choose whom he chooses is an act of uh, grace, and we need to be happy about that uh, because he uh, allowed us to be a part of his family as a grace move. And so, again, I see God's love and grace uh, emanating uh, not only in the New Testament, but also uh, very powerfully shown in the Old Testament as well. Thank you for answering that. We obviously live in a, in a broken world today, and there is, there is a lot of hatred and evil, and the church and Christians definitely don't seem to be exempt from that. In Revelation chapter 2, John writes to the church of Ephesus, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Do you think this warning relates to us today as we try to figure out how to be church in the midst of a broken world as we wait for Christ to return? Yeah, when you uh, take a look at that uh, passage in uh, Revelation, you find that um, Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, the saints, uh, had started out uh, with a bang. Uh, Jesus commends them for um, their great deeds. He commends them for uh, their uh, labor in uh, ministry. He commends them for persevering um, in the uh, face of opposition. He also commends them for calling out um, evil and wicked men and those that were false teachers and um, disciplining disciplining, uh, them as well. Uh, And so uh, Jesus was uh, commending them, but then he turns around and he says, hey, you you lost your first love. And uh, what that meant was, is that the uh, the passion that they had for Jesus, the fervor that they had for ministry uh, had turned cold and had become more of a, a ritualistic um, practice or uh, a um, routine uh, obligation, a duty. Uh, And the way we should think about church today and and think about our relationship uh, with God and our fellowship with God is that we should want to live a thank you life and not a have to life. We should uh, be seeking um, to continue the the passion and the fervor that we initially had. Uh, Otherwise, we can find ourselves um, like uh, the church at Ephesus, where we uh, come to church and we think that we're doing God a favor. If you've uh, been in church for a while, you you uh, will see. I've pastored for 19 years, and I've seen how some people start out with uh, a bang, you know, with a lot, lot of fire and and uh, really working hard for the Lord. But over time, challenges come. Over time, they get distracted by the world, and that fervor, that passion, that fire that they had starts to uh, wane, and they don't come to church as often. They don't read their Bible as often. They don't uh, study God's Word as often. They don't uh, disciple or evangelize uh, quite often. And, and again, we can become uh, like that uh, Ephesus church where we've lost um, the um, 
the first love. And, and, and I believe in that passage, he, he's talking about love for him and love for ministry and being devoted to him and doing all of those things that they once did when they first became a church. And so um, I, I think that your question is uh, right on point. It's, it's a, a very important question for um, the saints of today that we need to be on guard um, to, to make sure that we live that thank you life and not a have to life. And realize that it's an honor and a privilege to serve God, an honor and a privilege to serve people, and we should do it with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So that's kind of where our our resources are coming from. If we're living with that kind of gratitude, that's that's where it begins. That we're able to live that that kind of life is that absolutely. I mean, all we need to do is stop and think about. Uh, where God has brought us from and where he has uh, brought us to and where he's taking us. Um, you know, it's been said, uh, matter of fact, Dr. Anderson says all the time that there are two basic reasons why people uh, obey or serve God. One, in an appreciation for uh, what Jesus did on the cross, uh, but also a healthy uh, reverence and understanding that he's coming back with judgments and rewards. And so, um, those are uh, two motivating uh, factors, uh, but it shouldn't be because we're scared of God. It should be that uh, it's an opportunity for us to love him back uh, just like he first loved us. The Bible doesn't just talk about things that have happened, and we've alluded to this too already in the podcast here, but it also has a lot to say about our future. And uh, it, it honestly seems like we, we should expect darker times to come. For example, we, we can read about things like a, a period of tribulation on the earth like the world has never seen. And I think for many, it can almost be discouraging or make us fearful to read things like this. And, and yet we, we have these promises of God's love. So how does this love relate to this, this challenging future that the Bible describes? You know, you raise uh, a question that kind of reminds me of a, a lady that was in my Bible study. We did a, a, a study of the book of Revelation. It took us about a year uh, to complete it. And uh, when I first started, the lady uh, kind of chimed in and, and she said, you know, Pastor, um, my, my former pastor uh, told us not to read um, the book of Revelation because it was a lot of scary stuff in there. Um, and so uh, for years, she said she never read it. And I immediately directed her to Revelation 1-3, where um, the text says that uh, blessed is the one who reads, hears, and heeds this revelation. And so uh, my response to her was for years, your, past, your, your former pastor um, uh, allowed you to miss out on the blessing because, remember, it says blessed is the one that reads, hears, and heeds uh, the revelation. And so when we begin to look into uh, the future uh, things, we should be excited um, because God is again showing his powerful love. God is in the process as we read through uh, the text of saving us from the penalty of sin. And that's our past situation. He's saving us from the power of sin. That's our present situation. He's saving us 
ultimately from the presence of sin, and that's our future situation. We call those the three tenses of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so our future is a glorified state where we are ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ right here on earth. It gets back to um, the biblical meta-narrative that we talked about earlier, God's sovereign right to rule on earth as he does in heaven, his right to love and to be loved. Well, uh, we get a chance to finally see God ruling and reigning completely, uh, absolutely uh, on uh, earth because heaven comes down to earth and we have heaven on earth, uh, new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, uh, and we get a chance to rule and to reign with him. And so we have a very exciting uh, a future, um, and uh, it should be a motivator because the tribulation is coming, uh, and we should be motivated to share the goodness uh, of uh, God's love so that uh, those that are here won't have to go through uh, the uh, the terrible, terrible uh, things that will happen uh, during that seven-year period of tribulation that um, John writes about between chapters 6 and 19. Jesus the Messiah came the first time as a, as a baby in a manger, mm-hmm. but one day when he returns, uh, we see descriptions in the Bible uh, of a, a different picture with with Christ as this King of Kings and Lord of Lords coming with the the fierceness and, and wrath of Almighty God. I think this is a, a very different picture of Christ than many people perhaps have in mind. Would you explain a little bit how both of these presentations of Christ still represent a God of love? Sure. Uh, you know, sometimes... Um you know, I'm talking to uh, students and people and um, and certainly some of the um, New Testament saints. They had a misunderstanding of who Messiah uh, was and what God's love would ultimately look like. And so as I read passages like uh, John 3.16 and following, uh, Jesus' first advent was God showing love to the world uh, that um, everybody in the world— uh, who trusted Christ uh, would be saved and would not perish but have uh, everlasting life. And so the key there is uh, for those that trusted Christ as Savior. So as you read, and and this is where I think a lot of us make a mistake, is we just stop at 316 and don't go on to 17, 18, 19, and following. And when you continue to read, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus, that's who he's talking to at the time mm-hmm. uh, in chapter 3, he tells him that he didn't come into the world to judge the world, but he came into the world to be saved. So here's the love move. It's not just in 316 where it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth him in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's that's the first uh, uh, declaration, if you will. But he goes on to say he didn't come into the world to judge the world. This is a further explanation of of God's love. He came into the world so that people would be saved. And for those that reject him, the text says that they're judged already. So as I read that, I'm um, struck by the notion that God is not sending people to hell. People are choosing to go to hell because they reject Jesus Christ. And so his love is, I have 
uh, my outstretched arms to everybody, uh, but you reject me, so you have determined your fate by rejecting my son, Jesus Christ. I've made provision for you, um, and if you refuse the provision, then you're making a decision for your ultimate end, and, and I'm showing you love, but you're showing me rejection. And so that was his first advent. But his second advent will be a lot different, uh, differently than the first advent. His second advent will be where he's coming um, to judge the world and he's coming to dispense uh, rewards. So um, at the judgment seat of Christ, and we talk about that in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 12 to 15, um, that uh, individuals will receive rewards or lost rewards, however the, whatever the case may be, depending on righteous versus unrighteous deeds. But also, he's going to be judging. Uh, he'll judge uh, the uh, false prophet and the Antichrist. And we see that in Revelation 19, where they get uh, thrown into uh, the lake of fire. Uh, he will uh, bind Satan for a time and then loose him for a time and then judge Satan and throw him in the lake of fire. We see that in uh, Revelation 20. He also will turn to the sinners and judge them at the great white throne judgment. And then they will experience what we call the second death and they will be thrown into uh, the lake of fire. And so uh, we we have to begin to understand again when we come to the text that whatever God does on our behalf is a gracious move because he owes us nothing. But yet he loved us so much or he loves us so much, I should say, that he offers salvation so that you don't have to experience any of those things if you don't want to. You simply have to trust Christ as Savior. And he's made it so simple. He's only saying you need to believe, uh, and then you enter into a relationship with him. And then from that a relationship, um, you uh, should seek or work uh, overtime to enjoy an intimate fellowship with him. Thank you, Dr. Haywood. When, when I invited you in to, to come and talk about love in this series leading into Christmas, you couldn't have been more excited to specifically oh, talk oh, about man. love. Oh, what, why, why is this subject do you think so important to share, especially at the, the time we're in going into Christmas? You know, what, what do you think people should keep in mind about this topic of love? I, I, I'm so excited about God's love because of um, how he's loved me. And, you know, we all, uh, none of us are perfect people, uh, but uh, I know, you know, what I've come from. I had good parents, Christian parents raised up in a Christian home. But I didn't always act Christian-like, you know, got saved at, a, at an early age and uh, uh, yet uh, still lived an ungodly life for a long time until uh, 1984 when uh, I decided uh, that uh, uh, it was enough getting my head bumped, you know, and God spanking me. Uh, and then I uh, completely surrendered. But uh, I get excited about his love because I've seen the power of his love. As I study scripture, uh, Mike, I see God's love uh, as unending. Um, he continues to have the Holy Spirit pour out his love in our hearts. Uh, I see God's love 
as uh, undeserved uh, because he died while we were yet sinners. He died when we were not thinking about being a part of his uh, family. I see God's love as unlimited. He uh, talks about that he goes much more uh, than getting us into the relationship, but taking us through justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so his love is much more uh, than just saving us from the penalty of sin. And I see his love as unselfish. I think if we begin to see that Christ died, Christ sacrificed, he paid the ultimate sacrifice for us. He uh, gave up everything, put everything on the line. He took on humanity and and came into the world, gave up his life, returned to heaven, even right now, making intercession for you and for me. How can you not get excited about that kind of love? Because nobody, nobody, the old folks would say, nobody but nobody can love you like Jesus. Nobody. And so uh, when you really begin to understand the love of Jesus Christ, I get excited. I do. I just sometimes <laughs> I'm riding in my car and I just start crying. You know, because I know how good he has been. And I know um, just and and I'm only understanding a snippet of his love. His love is far greater than uh, what I can explain to you or what I've experienced. And and that's powerful in and of itself. Every time I think that I understand uh, how powerful God's love is, it gets even better than that because he shows me another level much higher and much deeper than what I've experienced in the past. So I can't help but get excited. <laughs> well, I can't think of a better way to end than that. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Hayward, for, for joining us. I so appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's been a joy. And I know that there's more of you that feel like I do, that you can't get enough of listening to this guy. So I just want to remind you that we also did have Dr. Haywood with us on the podcast for uh, the previous episodes, number 17 and 18. And there we, we talked to him here about studying the Bible and Bible study methods. Um, so for those of you who haven't listened to these episodes yet, I would strongly encourage you to go back in the podcast feed and check them out. Uh, we're starting to to add up quite an archive of good content now, and we just want to remind you that this stays available to you listeners. Uh, maybe there's a specific episode in, in the backlog that, that you feel like sharing with a friend. We would also just encourage you again to contact us. We love it when we get the chance to hear from you and uh, get feedback when you write in questions that you would like to hear us address. Our email address is savinggrace at gsot.edu. And don't be afraid if you feel like your question is good enough or not. We want to deal with questions that matter to you. Keep praying for our regular host, Carmen Pate, as we are hoping to have her back again soon. And I know that she is looking forward to it as well. So join us next week as we conclude our series leading into Christmas. And the next topic is going to be joy. And trust me, you don't want to miss out on that. Thank you for listening. We're grateful for you. And we want to wish you a blessed week. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.